You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Eric Meadows Johnson, who is running Phoenix and Elixir in production to power the hex.pm website. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what the HexPM site does? Yeah, sure thing. So HexPM is a packet manager for the Elixir and Erlang language ecosystems. Some background for myself, I'm part of the Elixir core team and I run the Hex uh, service and package manager, uh, of course. If you used uh, Elixir, you probably used some libraries that I've uh, worked on, for example, Ecto and uh, other such libraries. Nice. Yeah, I didn't know that you worked on Ecto. Very cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So when it comes to developing this site, I haven't really looked at the list of contributors. Are you basically the solo developer on that, or is this like a community effort? Yeah, so it's definitely a community effort. We have a, a Hex core team uh, consisting of myself, Wojtek Mach, and Todd Resedek. That's the three people that are basically the main maintainers, but we rely a lot on uh, outside outside contributions as well. Ah, okay. So the three of you, are you all actively also developing the website, not just the backend for that as well? No, so we all work on, on the on, on the website, the different uh, backend services, the main Hex client that you use uh, in the CLI. Yeah, so we kind of spread out on a little bit of everything. Nice. So I guess like just to start us off here, what type of traffic do you deal with on the HexPM site? So the website and the API itself doesn't get that much traffic. I looked it up here and we seem to be getting around, uh, if we average it out, we get around five requests per second. So it's it's not that much. Uh, but where we really get a lot of traffic is the repository, which is repo.hex.pm, which is basically an AWS S3 bucket with a content delivery network uh, in front. And we average around 140 requests per second to that. Yeah, so the repository holds all the package tarballs, the package index files, and we also host some other stuff there like install files for Elixir and OTP. So basically pre-built versions for that. Interesting. So those 140 requests per second, that is just anyone out there who happens to do, you know, like a mix install, like, you know, to get all the dependencies. So CI servers, personal projects, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So basically, so that's the majority of the traffic. So basically when you run mix steps get, for example, you fetch down some uh, index files to do the version uh, resolution, and then you fetch down the individual uh, package tarballs and that hits the repository. Yeah. Okay. So how long has this been project been going on for? Was it basically at the start of Elixir as well or no? Uh, it wasn't at the start of the of Elixir, but it was definitely in, in the beginning, pretty sure before 1.0 of Elixir. So I started working on the Hex client late 2013. At that point, we didn't really have a backend because it was uh, GitHub uh, or JIT based, uh, but we pretty quickly discovered that we needed some kind of package registry. Uh, so early 2014, I started working on the on the backend itself uh, to support that. Okay, and I guess the uh, CLI functionality came quite a bit before the website, or did you 
both launch out at the same time? Um, uh, it came a bit before the website. So when it was just JIT based, but that was very early. I wouldn't say that we really launched at that point. So when it really started, before it started being adopted, we switched over to the package registry. Uh, and to support that, we needed to build the website and the uh, APIs. So I would say that at the time we launched, we had both. Okay, cool. So this is a point where I usually ask people like, like what motivated you to use Phoenix and Elixir to build a site? <laughs> you know, considering, uh, you know, your experience with Elixir and what the actual thing does, it's pretty obvious why you chose Phoenix and Elixir, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, so that's kind of straightforward. Using Elixir itself to run the Elixir package manager just makes sense. Uh, when we started out, actually, I don't think Phoenix existed. Uh, so in the beginning, we just used Plug, which Phoenix is based on, to run the website. And when Phoenix started being production ready, we I think we pretty quickly switched over to that. Nice. So have you been updating to the latest Phoenix version as it comes out then for that site? Uh, yeah, we try to keep up to date on most of the dependencies, Phoenix, Ecto, and so on. Uh, so we might not be on the latest version right now, but we usually don't lag behind that much. Right. Yeah, it's really awesome that you guys open source that whole platform. Yeah. So yeah, so I think that makes sense as well, especially for something like a package manager, which is very trust-based, that people have insight in how it works and can, and can look at the code. Uh, and it helps for uh, us as well, of course, that we can get uh, help from the outside. Yeah, and it totally helps the community as well, because I know when I was working towards learning a little bit more about Elixir and Phoenix, like, you know, the first thing I was doing was like, can I find some open source projects, like real world projects? And uh, your site is one of those projects. So it's a, it's a great source just to look at some code and see how things work. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. And that's part of the reason why we try to keep up to date on dependencies and so on. And we kind of try to follow like the... I'm not sure what to call it, but kind of the latest best practices. For example, when Phoenix released or didn't release, but they released the concept of the of the Phoenix context, the way you kind of model your uh, application, where to where to place modules and so on. And pretty quickly after that was out, we tried to we kind of refactored parts of the application to to follow that model so that we can point people to the HexPM project as a good example of of the best practices and so on. Yeah, because it's so useful to have that guide to where you can just link people and it's like, oh, well, the best way to really see how something works is by looking at the code and the code doesn't lie. Yeah. So is this, well, I kind of know the answer because the whole project is open source, but for anyone, for anyone listening out there who hasn't seen the source code, like, is this a monolithic application or is it kind of just broken up into maybe a couple of different microservices? Um, that's a good question. Uh, it's a bit of a mix, I would say. So the HexPM project, which is basically the website and the API. That's kind of the big monolith. But we have a few different services that does uh, smaller parts as well. Uh, so for example, we just released a new service called uh, HexDiff, which you can use to get a source code diff uh, between different uh, packaged versions that we released as a separate uh, running service. And we have a few other services like the billing for private packages is a separate private service. Hexdocs, which is the documentation uh, hosting, is uh, uh, also a separate service. So there's a few smaller services, but we definitely have a big monolith as well. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing too. Like I think a lot of folks are, you know, well, maybe not a lot of folks, but I know I was looking at some, uh, trying to find some examples of billing. 
And I'm like, well, the Hex PM site has a membership where you can sign up for private repos. But then I looked at the code base and yeah, I noticed that all of that code is tucked away in like a magical closed source world. <laughs> so was there a decision to make that repo private or is it mainly just for security reasons on your end? Uh, so security is part of it. The other reason for making it private is that that's kind of, so everything in Hex is open source basically, except for uh, the billing project and our uh, repository to hold uh, operation files. And, and, and kind of the way that we can sell private packages would be to have some part of the code in closed source. So that someone, so it's fine for, of course, for someone to put up their own private Hex repository. But it, I think it would be a bit of a shame if someone can just put up a competing service using all the all the existing code and the billing uh, code as well. So I kind of think that makes sense to make it private. Um, but there's really there's really no big reason for making it private. I think that's but that's the way I thought about it when we started working on it. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't really think about it from the perspective of someone just rolling like a competitor to HexPM. Yeah. Uh, and, and like we're not really doing the private packages to make money. It's a way of uh, having some comfort and that we can continue running HexPM for uh, open source packages without having problems with running the services because of money reasons. Uh, so it's kind of a bit of a comfort to have some revenue coming in to be able to pay for the to be able to pay for the running costs. Yeah, for sure. So I haven't looked at the homepage in quite a while. Do you happen to know like like how many repos are actually on there? Last time I looked, we were a bit over 10,000 packages and maybe 60,000 different package uh, versions, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that looks great. Yeah, you can say that's a lot, <laughs> especially after yeah. you have to store so much information about each one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So maybe maybe speaking a little bit about that information, do you want to just go maybe a little bit into detail of like, what do you actually store in that S3 bucket? Like it kind of went high level before, but I, or I guess you can see like, what's the size of a typical package? Like, let's say if it has a couple of versions or whatever. Um. So that's a good question. I haven't actually looked at that data, but not that long ago, I downloaded all the packages just to run some tests on it when we did some changes to how we validate packages. And and it was a few gigabytes. It was less than 10 gigabytes to download all the package versions. Uh, but I don't really have exact data. So a package can be up to eight megabytes compressed to be allowed to be uploaded. But most packages are just source code. So they usually stay less than 100 kilobytes. Right. Wow. So under 10 gigs. I definitely thought it would have been more, but that's actually pretty cool to see that it is still a lot. I mean, 10 gigs is 10 gigs, but uh, it's not, you know, like 100 gigs. Big difference. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I think the main reason for that is that packages are usually just source code. So we don't usually like w when you compile your beam code, you wouldn't upload that as a package. Instead, you upload the source code. And when someone fetches the package, they would compile it. And, and I think source code is usually smaller than the compiled uh, code. Uh, so I think that's one of the reasons for it. Right. So swinging back a little bit to your decision to use a little bit of microservices, has there been any pain points kind of like on the developer side of things when you kind of want to hack on maybe a couple of those at the same time? So I think the biggest pain point for me or for the or for the core team has been kind of that it's a bit more the chore tasks, like updating dependencies, doing deploys, 
when you need to deploy multiple services uh, because they depend on each other for features. That kind of becomes more complex, but I think it weighs up with the, or like that's the downside, but I think the benefits of being able to work on something smaller uh, in separation uh, definitely outweighs those uh, drawbacks. I, I mentioned the diff service uh, that we built that not long ago. It was very, it was very nice to just be able to build that in separation from the Higgs website uh, and just focus on that diff service. Uh, and, and I think that made it quicker to to uh, build the diff service. Yeah. So speaking of that diff service, um, I forgot who initially developed it. Is her name like Joanna or something like that? Yeah, Johanna uh, Larson. Uh, so she developed that separately as a kind of proof of concept, uh, I think, uh, and deployed it. I think that's still running, actually, uh, just as an example of what it can be. And we really like that. And we asked if she would be able to help us build that for for Hex and make it part of, of the Hex itself. And, and she very kindly uh, did that. So the div service is primarily built by uh, Johanna. Uh, and it now runs part of, of the Hague services, which is really nice. Yeah, I remember reading her blog post and then trying it out. And it was like the most responsive feeling site ever, I guess you can say. <laughs> like it, it was just really nice to use. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. Now, and, that, and that's using Phoenix Live View, right? Yeah. So yeah, so it uses Phoenix Live View for the search functionality. So when you search for a package and you select the different versions, that's Live View. And then when we go to display the actual diff, that's just plain Phoenix uh, controllers and uh, and the templates. Right. Now, going back to the Hex PM, like the main website, that is not using Live View, right? Or is it using it anywhere or no? No, it's not using Live View at all. It doesn't have that much complex client-side functionality, and we kind of tried to keep it that way to keep it simple. Uh, we have some JavaScript for some minor things like copying the, the package definition string and a few other smaller things. So since we since we haven't had the need for more complex things yet, we haven't had the need to reach for LiveView. No, and also LiveView is very new uh, as well. So maybe if LiveView existed five years ago, we would have used it for more things. But so far we haven't had the need for it on the, on the website itself. Right, and I guess maybe you can even say that's maybe some benefit of going like the microservice route for the hex diff it's like you get to kind of experiment with live view on you know an important part of you know the tool chain but it's not like the core website yeah that's kind of cool yeah so just to be clear then hex pm site is pure server render templates with a little bit of javascript here and there like a traditional i guess you can say like a rail style application right yeah 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 exactly so it's just plain templates uh server render nothing fancy with single page uh, application or nothing like that Right. So I, I haven't looked at the code in a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Do you have like a like a private admin dashboard where you manage all that stuff or no? Uh, no, that would be really nice to have actually. So when we do admin stuff, we usually we have a few pre-prepared scripts uh, in our operations repository. For example, uh, renaming users, deleting packages, which might happen in rare cases. Uh, and stuff like that. So that's usually just a script that we run that executes on the HexPM server. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, the admin dashboard route, it's one of those things where it's like, it's a very, very big time sink to create like a really, really nice one. Before you know it, you're spending all of your dev time working on that instead of like the site itself. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I've been working 
at companies where we had pretty complex admin dashboards and a, and a large part of function uh, uh, of development time when, was actually maintaining that dashboard to keep it in sync with the rest of the application because you kind of have two views of everything now which kind of needs to stay in sync and stuff like that so it becomes a bit of a time sink yeah I think it's pretty cool though to see that the HexPM site is like it's a real application been running for a couple of years and it's like you know hacked together a couple of little scripts and like that's all you need to manage the back end like to make changes to the database when you have to yeah yeah and and when we need to do more complex stuff we usually just write a new script for that and then we keep that in the in the uh, operations uh, repository and and like we're all developers that are working on the administrative side so that makes that very easy if we weren't all developers, it would probably not that make that much sense. Right. At least now I know I can sleep better at night knowing that you have those scripts. Like you're probably running them in development before you just hop into the server and just run like a raw psql command. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so going back to the HexPM site, do you want to go maybe into a little bit of detail about like what the rest of your tech stack is to make that site work? Like what databases are you using? Are you using Docker or not? Things like that. Yeah. Uh, sure. So. For the database side, we use Postgres. We've, that's what we've always been using. And that's really the only, except for the repository bucket, uh, of course, that's the only persistent storage that we have. Uh, so we don't have any caching like Redis or anything like that. We haven't had a need for it yet. And we don't get that uh, high traffic on the website. So uh, not having to do caching uh, has been really nice. We use uh, Docker, so all our deploys are Docker-based. Uh, so we deploy an, a Docker image to our Kubernetes uh, cluster. And for all the front of the backend, like the load balancers and things like that, that's all running on Google Cloud. So we use Google Cloud's hosted Kubernetes service. So all the load balancers uh, and um, HTTPS termination, stuff like that happens happens there. And yeah, I think that's the main thing. So the other software that is required to run HexPM. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I'm pretty surprised that you don't use any caching at all. But I mean, like, that's kind of like maybe one of the selling points to Phoenix. It's like you really don't need to reach for that type of caching that you would do in Rails until you get really, really high scale. Yeah, yeah, that's really nice. And the, the only time where we're... Uh, discussing using something like Redis was to do the uh, API rate limiting. S since we HexPM runs on three different uh, servers, so we needed some kind of synchronized storage to do the rate limiting, and we didn't really feel right about using Postgres for that. So we discussed using Redis, but in the end, we just used uh, Erlang distribution. So when a request comes in, we send that little bit of information to the two other servers so that they can also keep the rate limiting counters basically. Uh, and so that's really nice that we can just reach for that instead of having to deploy and maintain another caching service. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah, I remember going through your code base a while back and seeing like a throttle.ex file sitting in there in your lib directory. I didn't go through it in detail, but what made you decide to do that at the app level instead of that, like, uh, I guess, I'm not familiar with GCP's like load balancer, but could that also be done there as well or no? I, I'm not sure actually if that's something they support. Uh, to be honest, I haven't really looked into it, but it was so easy to just do it in the application. So that's what we decided to do. Yeah, I'm not sure the details of that file, but the last time I looked, it wasn't very long. It was maybe like, I don't know, 100 lines of code or something like that. Yeah, and it's, and it's, and it's very simple. It's just 
keeping the counters for the local requests and then just sending a message to the to the same process on the uh, other servers so that they can update their uh, own counters so it's so it's very straightforward and you don't really since it's rate limiting it's not really critical that the counts are perfect so if a server goes down or if we lose the counts during a deploy that's not the uh, end of the world i think it's a pretty good fit for that so you mentioned using uh, Kubernetes with GCP and Docker. Are you also using Docker in development as well or no? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, it's only to do the deploys. I don't think anyone in the core team does it. I just run it on my local machine um, and I'm happy with that. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess when you don't need to really spin up that many dependencies, then suddenly, you know, getting Postgres and some version of Elixir going isn't too bad. Yeah, so that's right. That's one of the benefits of not having that many dependencies on external services is that it's easier to get your development environment uh, up and running. Yep. So when it came to choosing GCP, did you look at other alternatives like DigitalOcean or AWS or things like that before you chose that one? Uh, yeah, uh, we looked around a bit. I don't think DigitalOcean's Kubernetes offering was in general availability at that point. I looked at Amazon's Kubernetes offering as well, but they have a pretty steep getting started cost because you pay for the for the master servers. While on Google Cloud, you only pay for the actual servers that is running your own software. Uh, so it's kind of a big difference if you're only using small clusters. So for so for example, we have a a, a production cluster and a staging cluster, and the staging cluster doesn't really get any traffic so we can use small servers and so on and we don't have to pay for it that much uh, but on amazon since they have a start cost and i don't remember what it is but they have a start cost just to get this cluster uh, up and running so even if you have a small cluster you're kind of still paying a premium uh, and, and, and since we didn't need any larger clusters it didn't really make sense to go for that because the price difference was almost double and, and, and I think Amazon and Google were the only main offerings of hosted Kubernetes at that time, at least. Yeah, it feels like maybe in the last year or so is when a couple other providers starting releasing that. So when it comes to your cluster on GCP, you mentioned you have three servers running. Do you happen to know like what the specs of those servers are? Yeah, each server is two cores, which if I remember correctly, is just one core and two uh, what's it called? Logical threads and four gigabytes of RAM and memory. So six cores and 12 gigabytes in total over the whole production cluster. Well, that is not bad at all. But now when someone does, like when they try to install dependencies on the command line, do they, they have to go through that before they can get things from S3, right? Or is it just straight to S3? No, so it's actually just straight to S3. And we can do that because we store the package index files. So the files that tells you what versions are, are available of a package and what dependencies uh, each version has. We store those as static files on the bucket. And since it's stored there, you don't have to hit the API uh, at all when you run mixtepsget, for example. And that's actually really nice because it's easier to get better availability on S3 with a content delivery network uh, in front than on your API servers where we do deploys uh, regularly and we run a bunch of different software on there or, or we run a, it has a bunch of different functionality that might break 
so for example, if we break something with login uh, on the website, we don't want our, our package fetching to break. And that's really important because if package fetch fetching fails, it's very disruptive to the whole to the whole community because so many different things rely on it. It's not just when you run it, uh, that it's annoying that you can't fetch packages when you are developing because nowadays that's very tied into the way people do deploys and stuff like that. So it's very critical that package fetching never breaks. That's a brilliant design to figure out. Did you end up doing that on like a first pass or is that like something you refactor to later? Uh, no, I actually think that was the first pass. We've switched or updated the way that the index works as we have been growing. So in the beginning, the index was just a single ETS file, uh, which we which we dumped to disk and upload to the bucket, which had the whole registry. And eventually that became a scalability issue because we were getting so many packages and package versions that this file uh, was becoming too large. So we changed it to split the index so that each package has its own file so that you only fetch the information that you actually need when you when you are downloading packages. But that's really the only major change that we did. From the beginning, the registry was uh, stored on the bucket instead of the uh, instead of fetching it through in uh, API. Was that uh, was that something that you developed or was it somebody else? No, that's something that we developed. Yeah, I mean, like you personally, or someone else on the core team, or did you all think of it kind of like together and figured out like, okay, this is the way to do it? Uh, so at that point, we didn't have a core team. It was just me with help from the Elixir team at time to time. So like the initial ideas were all mine. Some didn't end up working out. For example, we had to redesign how we fetch the registry and the and the package uh, index. And at that point, we had the core team, so that was very nice that we could discuss different uh, alternatives and way of uh, optimizing it uh, as a group. That's uh, always helpful. Yeah, awesome end result. Now, how does that work, though, when it comes to dealing with private packages? I haven't signed up for that, so I'm not really sure like what the process is like. Do you want to just walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I can explain kind of the differences in, on an infrastructure level, what happens when you fetch a private package. So we can start with how it works for a public package. So the first thing you hit when you download something the, is the repository. So you that's repo.hexpm. So you hit your our uh, content delivery network, which is Fastly, which is basically varnish based, which is very nice because you can kind of customize exactly how your content delivery should work uh, in code, uh, which is super nice uh, for us. And, and usually that just goes through Fastly and hits the S3 bucket. And in I think we have a something like a 99% cache rate on the content delivery network. So that's uh, very nice. Since you can customize the content delivery with, uh, with code, we can also do authentication on the content delivery uh, edge servers. So the private packages have a slightly different URL. So when we see the differences in the URL, we know that we should do uh, authentication. And so on, on the Fastly servers, we kind of do a pre-flight request to the uh, API services, so the, so the HexPM servers, to make sure that the API key that, uh, that you have has uh, access to the package that you are fetching. Uh, and if that is successful, the pre-flight request was successful, 
we go through to the uh, S3 bucket. So this is really nice that we can do this uh, on the edge, basically. The downside is that for private packages, we are hitting the API servers. And as I mentioned earlier, that is not as good because it has it doesn't have as high availability guarantees. So we're trying to refactor that to do an authentication only on the S3 servers, basically by uploading files where the API key matches the package so that we can only hit the uh, S3 servers for fetching packages. So if that makes sense, it, yes, it's a bit complicated how we do the uh, authentication on the edge, but it's really nice that we can just write varnish files to be able to customize this. Yeah, so I've never used Fastly. Like, do you literally just write varnish files and like upload that to wherever it needs to go and, and it just works? Yes, it's a, uh, they're called VLC files, which is varnish language something files. Uh, and we just upload that to Fastly and they deploy it on their servers and it just takes a few seconds. Nice, I'm gonna have to check that out because I've always been using uh, other services for a CDN, but I have been hearing, I know a couple other people use Fastly and they're always bragging about like how great it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they're really good. And they sponsor uh, HexPM, which is very nice because we have a lot of traffic to the content delivery network. So that's very helpful. Another really nice thing that they do, which I haven't found in other content delivery networks is that you can do unlimited and instant uh, purges. So we get really high cash rates or really high uh, cash hits by doing basically infinite cash times on the, on the, on the network. And when someone uploads a new package so that we have to update the index files, for example, we just purge those files. And, and that just happens in a few seconds and it doesn't have any limitations, which many other networks have that you can only do like maybe a thousand purges per some time limit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds awesome, especially with your type of thing where you're dealing with a lot of packages. Like, yeah, you'd hit that limit pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of Fastly, maybe we can talk a little bit more about some other uh, SaaS tools that you might use. Like, do you even send out emails maybe for like user related things? Yeah. So we do, for transactional emails, we use Amazon SES, Simple Email Service. And that's, I think that's the only thing that we run on. So we've been migrating a lot of things from AWS to Google Cloud to just because it's easier to keep it uh, all in one place. So before we had a bunch of the buckets and so on on AWS, and we've been slowly migrating that over to Google Cloud. So the only thing left on Amazon is the emailing and the main S3 bucket where we store the packages. So that's the only thing, two things we use on AWS. Other services that we use, Rollbar for error reporting. We use Stripe for the, for the billing on the billing service and everything like logging and matrix all happen on on the Google Cloud Platform. So do they have good integration for uh, logging and metric, metrics? Because I haven't used that before. It's decent, I would say. Uh, the logging is pretty straightforward. You have a pretty fast search interface and so on. The metrics isn't really as good, I would say, because their interface isn't that flexible for it. Something like Grafana lets you write a lot more complex queries uh, and just that you can customize the way that you display the data 
in way better ways. So those things on Google Cloud isn't as great, but for us, it's it's good enough. It's not worth it to reach out for Grafana or Prometheus and uh, stuff like that, because it's good enough. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, it's almost like the admin panel thing again. You know, it's like setting up that whole full-blown Grafana stack is like, it's not easy and it's nice rewards, but if you don't need them, it's like you can get it elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's so nice because it's just integrated into everything. So we don't do anything for the logging because when we deploy to Kubernetes, uh, they just take the standard output from your application and they and they shove it into the logging and we don't really have to do anything to make it work. It, it just works. So so it's real nice that way. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you do get some type of at least some web UI where you can look at your logs. You don't need to like go in there and start monkeying around with servers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you get some interface to do some basic searches by labels and pre-text search, but it's not that advanced. The logging isn't that bad, actually. It's the it's the metrics that uh, that I think is lacking quite a bit because it's really constrained in what it allows you to do. It's hard to combine metrics and it's hard to do more complex queries where you try to aggregate multiple things and stuff like that, which I'm used to when using things like uh, Grafana. Right. So have you considered playing around a little bit with the Elixir telemetry library to kind of make, maybe get your own logs out of that, like for important things that you care about in your app? So we don't have any custom metrics in our applications. So we rely on the metrics that Google Cloud provide out of the box. Uh, but we'll probably be starting to use telemetry to do our own application metrics for because we're starting to look into things like how long it takes to rebuild the registry when you deploy a package and stuff like that, just to get some performance data so that we know that we don't break things when we when we make changes. And at that point, we're going to reach for, for a telemetry to do that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do on that front, if that makes its way into the open source repo. Yeah, yeah, it definitely will. When we, when we start working on that, that will be all in the open, so to speak. Nice. So you mentioned uh, a while back using Stripe for the billing. So how has that experience been? Is this like set up for the new Stripe APIs with, with the SEA type of stuff? Uh, yeah. So we use the Stripe, uh, I think it's called, is it called Stripe billing, which is kind of their way of doing re- recurring subscriptions. And it's been, it's been really nice. Stripe is, it feels like they're way ahead of their competition in the way their dashboard works, their very much ahead of the competition when it comes to API documentation, documentation in general. So I really like Stripe. You mentioned the, the new strong customer authentication. They released new APIs to support that. There's new uh, European Union regulation for that that was released, uh, that was put live or so to speak a few months ago. And we are in progress of migrating to that. That experience hasn't been that great for us because basically we have to new, move to a new API to, to support, which makes sense because there's different, there's different flows for the, for the users and so on. But that experience hasn't been that great because it means that we, in essence, has, have to rebuild the whole billing service. And it takes a while to understand how it all works and it, it is put together because they have old documentation for the old APIs and then there's some new documentation for the new APIs, and it's hard to kind of understand what supports the new SCA regulations and so on. So that's been kind of hard. I started on a rewrite for it and then ended up scrapping that because 
and then it turned out that the that the way that our that we build the billing service basically the flow of how the how billing communicates with hxpm wouldn't work with the with the new stripe apis so we had to scrap that and basically start from the beginning uh, which was kind of a bad experience yeah so far i've talked to a few people who have migrated to that and it's it's been the same story like it is so much more difficult to set up versus the old api like rightfully so because yeah there's a lot of things you need to account for suddenly it's like you know the user might need to do some type of you know enter a pin number during the transaction so there's a lot of like back end to front end to back end to front end type of things yeah and and it's i mean it's understandable because it's there's a lot of necessary complexity so so it's understandable that a lot more complexity is pushed to the end user but it, it makes it worse with stripe because they have so many different ways of use of doing the same thing basically like you can use they have like stripe elements which is their uh, i think javascript based uh, apis where you basically write more javascript than than backend code and then there's alternative to and, and then there's alternatives like they have a hosted checkout page uh, and, and 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 the first approach we did try to continue to use that checkout page because we didn't want to write that much javascript we wanted to keep it simple but that uh, checkout page didn't support some new features or some SA regulation. So in, in, in then that's the reason why it didn't work out for us. But that's really you don't really that's 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 not really documented or it's very poorly documented hidden away. So you don't really know about it until you've written everything and then it you discover that it doesn't work for this very specific edge case workflow that you need to support for the new uh, regulations. Yeah, I'm hoping over time that enough people report feedback back to Stripe trying to implement the new APIs and then hopefully their documentation will uh, improve over time. Yeah, I exactly. Yeah, and I think it's a it's just a time question. Eventually, the the checkout page functionality that they have will catch up with the rest. It's just that they, they need to start somewhere and they can't release everything with the full support for uh, everything from from day one. Yeah. So going back a little bit to the HexPM site or the project overall, do you maybe want to just like run us through what it looks like to deploy your application from development to production? Yeah, sure thing. So I mentioned a few times that we have an operations repository. So that's the other private repository that we have. That's where we have our Terraform configuration on our Kubernetes configuration and some of the scripts. That's a to, that's the three primary things. So basically, as much as possible, we try to set up in Terraform for uh, provisioning things like the Kubernetes cluster, S3 buckets, domain names, permissions for different users and stuff like that. And we also have the Kubernetes files, which describes uh, the services that we run. And that's also how we do the deploys. So every time a commit is pushed to one of the repositories, we do a Docker build and push that to the Google Cloud hosted Docker repository. And that is connected to the to the Kubernetes cluster. So to make a new deploy, we update the Kubernetes uh, configuration file. And in CI, we basically reapply the Kubernetes uh, configuration against the cluster. Uh, and that's when the deploy happens. So there's basically three steps. First, you push a commit, then you wait for the commit to build the Docker file. Then you can update the Kubernetes configuration, and you push the commit to the 
to the operations repository and then CI runs for the for that repository and applies the configuration. It has a few steps which isn't that nice. We're looking at different ways of improving that. For example, when we started out running HixPM, we were running on Heroku uh, and a few years back we switched to Google Cloud for everything. And the Heroku experience is a lot nicer because it's just Git push for a, now it's a few different steps, but there are ways of solving that. And uh, we just haven't gotten to building it yet. Right. So when it comes to that though, like, you know, in the ideal world, it would be really sweet if you can emulate the Heroku setup where it's like you get push, you just wait, and then suddenly it's running in production. But how would you end up dealing with certain things like, you know, database migrations? Like sometimes you just don't want them run. Sometimes you do want them run. Like how would you deal with that in your new and upcoming system? Yeah. So right now we run migrations manually. So basically when we build a new feature that needs that needs a new table, for example, we first need to push the migrations and deploy them so we, de we can run the migrations and then we push the feature that uses the new uh, database table. So this is also kind of a bad experience because a lot of our de de development happens in pull requests and the pull request usually contains everything that needs to happen. So it contains both the migrations and the new feature that needs what is being migrated. So it's kind of a bad experience that you can't just merge that pull request. We've made that mistake before, where we merge the pull request and we deploy, and it turns out that that didn't really work out. <laughs> so what you need to do is that you need to pull out the migration from the pull request, merge and deploy that separately, and then merge the rest of the pull request, which isn't that great. But I, I, I don't think there's really a good solution for that. You need to somehow do two separate deploys anyway. So unfortunately, I don't have a good solution for that. Yeah, because I think it is one of those things where it's like, if you follow Hacker News and other tech communities, you just hook up Kubernetes and it's web scale and you push yeah. a button and like everything is done. But yeah, in like reality, there's just so many little things that you need to think about that is like unrelated to Kubernetes itself. It's like, you know, application level things like dealing with migrations and keeping things like stateless and all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, that's, I don't think anyone has really solved that migration problem because as soon as you're running more than one server, you need to separate the migration code from the code that is going to use the migration. Otherwise, you have the problem where you need to stop the service, do the migration, and then restart the service, which isn't really possible today, right? Yeah. And then you mentioned you have three of these uh, websites running in parallel, you know, and, and they're getting load balanced on the GCP side through Kubernetes. It's like, well, I imagine when you do a deploy, you're doing like a, some type of rolling restart, right? Yeah. Like one goes down and then the other two are up. So it's like, yeah, you're, like your code needs to be able to run with two different versions of your database. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the old version of the code and the new have to have to play nice with the new database migration. Yeah. And, and that becomes so add, add, adding a new table is the, is the easy scenario, right? Something more complicated mm -hmm. is, for example, when you need to rename a table or you need to move a column from one table to another because... Now it's not just two deploys, it's three deploys. One where you update your code to be able to work with both versions of the database, and then you have the deploy for the migration and the deploy to only use the new table, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets super complicated too, because sometimes you're just like, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe that column that you're moving, it can't be written to until it's been fully moved. So it's like, what do you do now? Do you take like the whole website down, put it in some type of like maintenance mode? just to keep that column from not being written to. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we actually done a migration doing exactly that. 
uh, I don't remember what we were changing. Yeah, we were we were actually migrating the database. We were migrating the database from Heroku to Google Cloud. And what we did is that we updated the Act repository. So the Act repository is just a module, so you can switch out the functions. Uh, so we switch out all the functions to read from the environment if we're running in in read-only mode. And when we re were in read-only mode, we only accepted functions. You could only call repo functions that did reads from the database. So you could call repo get, repo all, all of that. But you couldn't do repo insert and repo uh, update. Uh, so we deployed, wrote all that code to update the, uh, the repository to support these two different modes. We pushed the environment change to put it in write-only mode. After that, we dumped the database, moved it over to Google Cloud, and then we put it in, and then we put it out of read-only mode. Uh, so we were in write mode for maybe like five minutes. So you couldn't do stuff like publish packages. You couldn't uh, do stuff like logging into the website. Anything that did a write would fail. But the website still generally worked because you could browse for packages, you could search for packages, you can look up all of that. And, and most importantly, since this was only on the website and the repository is a separate thing, you could still fetch packages. So it wasn't that bad of an experience to actually do this database migration. Yeah, that's awesome. So I wonder, I mean, I don't know Elixir well enough and certainly not Ecto well enough. Is there an opportunity for like some package to be developed that would like, you can just put it into your, you know, mix file and suddenly configure a couple of things. And like, you can now flag your app as being read only. And suddenly like anytime you ever write to a database, like you can just somehow get a really nice flash message saying like, oh, you know, the app is in read only mode. Is that even like technically possible or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely technically possible, but I would argue that you maybe wouldn't even need a library for it because it would just be a single module library. But I, I, well, I guess there's two part of it. There's one part that is putting the repository in uh, read-only mode, which is very easy. You just write some new some new functions that uh, that uh, check a flag uh, to see if you can call these functions and you return some error if you can't. And like you said, the other part is the, is uh, displaying some message to the user, for example, like a Phoenix flash message. Uh, so yeah, 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 I think that could be a good library. Yeah, I'm gonna have to bug you in IRC to write that one so we can all benefit <laughs> <Yeah>. from it. <laughs> so going back to the site, you know, now it's been deployed, database migrations are all up and running, everything is cool. Uh, what have you done to plan for some disaster recovery or like unexpected events? Do you do database backups? Like, do you back up the S3 stuff, even though it's already like super redundant? What goes on? Yeah, so we, for the database backups, we just use the Google Cloud built-in stuff. So I think it does a backup once a day or something like that. And we have a read replica. So if something happens to that server, we can switch over to the uh, to the replica. We have daily backups for things like the buckets for packages and, and things like that. Most importantly, the package tarballs because things like the index and registry, you can just rebuild if something happens from the, you can rebuild it from the database. So we use TarSnap for, for the for the backups, which is really nice. It's a service to basically upload your backups and it does a, a diff, so it only takes the changes. So you can, every night we upload backup the whole S3 bucket, but it only takes the changes and stores that, which is really nice for us. Yeah, you definitely don't want to send over 10 gigs every time. No, exactly. And since we have pre-built OTP versions, stuff like that, in total, the whole bucket is way bigger than just the packages. Uh, so we definitely don't want to do that. For stuff like disaster recovery or, or like detecting a disaster, we don't really have 
that much. We have alarms if one of if the services don't don't respond anymore. Uh, we're working on setting up alarms for more of the metrics, for example, higher latency or or things like that. If things become slow, but we don't really have set up proper SLAs and things like that for the services. So so that's something that we need to improve and work on. But yeah, the main thing we have is basically a health check that just makes a request against the service, uh, and if and if it stops responding, it sends an uh, email to the core team members. So that health check is that something Google does for you through their service, or are you using something else? Yeah, it's built into Google. So all the Google Cloud Platform logging and metrics and stuff like that is called uh, Stackdriver, which is a bit weird. It's a bit of a, like a separate thing from Google Cloud, or it's part of Google Cloud Platform, but somewhat separate. Uh, but that's Stackdriver is the thing that does uh, uptime checks. Okay. Does it have any options to where, because I've never used that before, does it have any options to where you can be like, okay, make sure the web server responds with a 200, but also you know lower than 100 milliseconds response time? Uh, you can check the status type. I'm not sure if there's a latency check. You can do stuff like you can have a timeout that it needs to it needs to accept five requests within within five minutes and stuff like that. But I'm, I don't remember if it has an exact latency check for each request. Okay. Yeah, because I'm just thinking like off the top of my head, that seems like a cool way to maybe do like a latency check to make sure the website isn't like getting hung up and taking two seconds to respond. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be a nice way of doing it. it. It could be a bit tricky. So maybe you would, because it does, it uh, makes the health check from different parts of the world just to make sure, I guess that is reachable from all the parts of the uh, internet. So the latency can be kind of, when you look at the graphs, they can be kind of irregular for the request. But maybe if you can do a, a latency check against the, from the region, which is closest to the, uh, to the servers, maybe that would work, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. People in Singapore or something like that, yeah, it's going to be a little bit more than like two milliseconds. Yeah, they are fortunately always screwed because they always have high latency. <laughs> yeah. Well, after all said and done here, do you have any advice for other people who are running similar stacks in production? Like what's some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this whole infrastructure? So the, so the thing I think we, we did right was that we didn't start out with like the fancy infrastructure and Google Cloud Platform uh, and Kubernetes and stuff like that. When, when, we, when we started HexPA, we just ran it on Heroku on a single, like one of their small dinos. Uh, and that worked for a very long time for us. As we got more traffic and we wanted more insight in our application, for example, we want to connect to it with uh, uh, Observer to be able to debug the, the running uh, systems, stuff like that you can't really do on Heroku. So that's part of the reason why we switched over to Google Cloud. But Heroku was so easy for us. Like we talked about earlier, just git push and it just works and you just create a Postgres server and it just works, all of that. So that was very critical for us to just be able to work on Hex without worrying about this stuff. So that's one of the things I think we did right. I think we were storing the uh, the critical stuff like the package tarballs and the package index on something separate that has super high reliability and uh, high uh, availability, which is also nice because you're not, of course you don't want your, your website and API to go down or be broken, but you have to worry less about that because it's not as critical anymore. Uh, so that's, I think the infrastructure wise, that's the two best decisions that we made. Yeah, it totally makes sense too, right? Because as you've discovered, the app side of things, it's like, yeah, it's almost 
I mean, in a way, I think I would say it's even more difficult than developing the application itself. Like it's a whole other ball game, kind of. Yeah, exactly. So we talked about best tips, lessons learned. Do you recall any mistakes that you made in the code base where you were like, oh yeah, you know, we fixed that after we discovered it was like maybe not so great to begin with? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I would like to say that we haven't made any mistake, but we probably have. I can't really think of anything major right now. Maybe, so this is really infrastructure wise, but one of the things that we think we can do better and improve on, and I hope we had worked on earlier, was the testing of the Hex client. So the Mix client, the, uh, the CLI is very, so all, all the different services is really nice because like when you're working on services, you control everything, you have logs, it's very easy to start debugging if something goes wrong. But when something goes wrong in the, in the client and it runs on a user's own machine, everything becomes way more complex. It's hard to debug. Uh, you can't really push new logging or tracing to the user. So it's way more important that you have a really solid uh, test suite, which I think is, is not as good as it can be right now for us. And, and, and it just needs to be more solid because when something goes wrong, it's so much harder to solve it. So, so like, that's one of the mistakes I think that we did is that we didn't make sure that the Hex client test suite was really high quality and and runs fast and it's easy to use. That's, that's I think, something that we can improve on. Hmm. So when it, we didn't really get a chance to talk too much about testing, but how does that work in practice? Like, are you actually running tests against like a, like a, like a private S3 bucket or do you just have those files locally uh, for the test suite itself? Yeah, so for the... For the server, when we run tests against the repository, we, we use mocks to, to mock out that part of the application and we run it uh, locally instead. And, and that's pretty easy because the S3 bucket has a really simple uh, API and it's pretty similar to, to a file-based API. So for testing and for running in local development, we just have a, have a mock module that, that, is, that has a, that a file-based system. Nice. Yeah, I haven't looked at that part of your code base, but I know uh, this is unrelated. Well, it's kind of related to S3, but have you ever played with that Arc library now called Waffle, the file uploading one? Uh, no, I haven't actually. I've, I haven't used the, yeah, I think Waffle was forked from Arc or something like that, but I haven't I haven't used yeah. the, any of them, uh, no. But I, I, I think that could be good to, to do. I think that would be a good way of solving like the mismatch that you can't really, it's very hard to test the S3. S3 stuff from your local machine. So something like like Waffle would be would be nice to have. Yeah. The only reason I brought it up because it has this pretty cool idea of like you can set the backend to either be local file storage or S3. So then for your test suite, you just set it for the local storage and then it's like you just deal with local files. It's kind of neat. Oh, but yeah, it sounds nice. like you're already doing that kind of without that. Yeah, kind of like an ad hoc, very simple way, only supports the very specific needs that we have. Mm -hmm. So Eric. Thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was nice talking to you. Yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot about the Hex site and uh, some really cool stuff. Now, before we wrap this up, do you have any links that you want to share? Maybe to your site or Twitter, GitHub, things like that? Um, yeah, so if you want to look at all the services and code that we've been talking about, you should go to github.com slash hexpm. There you can find all the different repositories. We love contributors. It helps us out a lot. Our new features 
uh, and bug fixes so on rely on uh, outside uh, contributions. So I really encourage you to check out the code, see if you find an issue, go through the issue list and see if there's something that you might like working on. So yeah, do that. My Twitter is EMJII. So go there, check me out. Uh, yeah, that's it, I think. Cool. Sounds good. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.